Hey everybody, what's up? This is Airy in the Air. I'm a professional highliner, paraglide pilot, skier, filmmaker, podcaster, deep thinker, writer. And today I want to tell you about an awesome experience I had last month where I went to Canada and we set the world record for the longest highline. It's a sick story. I'm stoked to tell you all about it. So here we go. First, a little music. Let's get into it. And what connects us all is that spirit. That's what connects us all, that spirit. Rock and roll is not conforming to the people who came before you, but creating your own path in music and in life. That is rock and roll, and that is us. The question is, are we rock and roll? And I say you're goddamn right we rock and roll. Nobody can stop you. Okay, so if you don't know what a high line is, it's a slack line that's way off the ground and it's one inch wide and this particular high line that we're talking about was two kilometers long. That's 1.25 miles, that's 6,670 feet, it's five laps around the track. It's really, really long. It's unimaginable, right? So we'll start with a little bit of the background here and how we put the line up at all, and then I'll tell you about my experience walking it, all right? So first, this is in a place called Asbestos, Quebec, Canada. It's two hours outside of Montreal, and the High Line is across this old mine and it was an asbestos mine so the rock there is a bunch of asbestos material still there the mine has been closed since 2012 and has since filled itself up with groundwater as huge holes in the ground just naturally do the water at the bottom is very clean they tested it it is absolutely drinking quality which is just beautiful. I swam in it once, which was really nice. It has a very soft feel to it. It's very soft water. It almost like, I'm not sure whether the pH is different or whether it just has certain minerals in it, but like, like kind of like makes your fingers feel like almost slick when you, when you're in the water. So the mine is really, really big and it's a incredible feat of humanity that we can even just like excavate that much material out of the earth. The town of Asbestos is very interesting because basically it was a mining town, right? But the mine was small at the time that the town was developed. And then as the mine grew, the mining company bought houses and properties from the townspeople so that they could demolish them and keep building the mine. So if you look at an aerial view of Asbestos, Quebec, 
you'll see that the roads just terminate into the mine because they used to be normal blocks, normal neighborhoods, but the, the mining company bought them up, demolished the houses, and continued to build the mine. So it's like the town of asbestos literally is on the edge of the mine, right? And the people of asbestos, basically everyone who lived there worked at the mine. Like it was the by far and away the largest employer and the biggest economic driver of the community. And so in 2012, when they shut down, and obviously they shut down because asbestos since the 90s has been, um, was found to be carcinogenic and asbestos insulation, especially in lots of buildings, had to be taken down and replaced. And so the need for asbestos went way down and but but to go back even further asbestos when it was discovered it was like a miracle material they used asbestos to make all kinds of things um mostly insulating right so first they made like all of the clothes for firefighters and all of these gloves and all of this like all this stuff that cut the cost of the products that they were making by like by like 80%. So it was super revolutionary and the material spread around the world and the the demand for it skyrocketed, right? And then in the 90s it was d- discovered to be carcinogenic and so they stopped using it. So basically the the feeling in the town was that they were very proud. Like this was a material, this was like revolutionary. It was helping people. It was really changing the, the shape and size of certain industries and firefighting and all this stuff. Right. Well, in 2012, the mine shuts down and the people in the town, like were very proud of it before, but now they're almost like they were both like, there's some level of shame when you get proven so wrong that something you were proud of is actually like harming the people who are using it. And the purpose and the meaning that comes from having such steady work for so long and having that all shut down, like asbestos kind of became a rough place. A lot of unemployment, a lot of poverty, and crime comes along with that, right? And it's a tiny, tiny, tiny little town, right? So this world record slackline event is put together by these slackliners from Montreal, right? And these guys are just amazing. Danny, Julian, uh, those are two of the main guys and so many more of the local slackline community. And basically what they did was they came in not just to make a long slack line across the mine, but they actually came in to make a community event, uh, a music and slack line festival, right? And in doing so, they created a new venue in the town that is now like, you know, two acre park that is on the edge of the mine with a view of the beautiful mine and has all these slack line park with a bunch of new posts that they put into the ground and they came with dump trucks and put a bunch of beach sand on it. So, Families can come and slackline, and there's 
beautiful trees and all kinds of stuff, right? It's really, really cool. And so this slackline festival that we did, the Asbestos Slackline Festival, is like, it's more meaningful than just the world record, right? Now we're going to get to that. It's really, it's really cool. It's an awesome thing that they did and huge props to those guys for having the vision that went so far beyond just the world record slackline or what was immediately the desire, you know, of slackliners to walk a big line, right? So I was introduced to Danny Bouchard, who is the main organizer. I met him last year in Moab, Utah, when he came there to rig the 900 meter long, what is still the American record, right? And we hit it off right away. He's an amazing, amazing person. He's an organic farmer and a permaculturalist and has a really, really good sense of wellness and his thoughts and his life. So uh, we hit it off right away. I love this guy. And so it was him and I and probably three or four or five other people who really were super stoked on making this 900 meter rig. And I became one of the rigging captains and we totally nailed the rig. And so he was really excited to have me out to this asbestos slackline festival. And so I flew to Montreal and I was a little bit sick because I had been just having a crazy summer. I had done two paragliding competitions. I had done Oregon's longest high line. And then after all of that, I did my longest paraglide flight ever. I did 178 kilometers over six hours into the desert. And just when I got back, I was just smoked. My body said no more. I got a fever. I got a sore throat. I got a cold sore. I got an infection thing on my neck. So basically I flew to Montreal <clears throat> and I was on the mend and I still kind of am on the mend as you can hear. Um, and I flew overnight. So I get to Montreal. I arrive there. This nice photographer woman, Doreen, picks me up at the airport and drives me out to the event site in asbestos two and a half hours. And immediately when I get there, it's like 1 p.m. and the rigging is starting. So of course, I don't go to bed. I just fill up my camelback full of water and let's get to rigging. So most people ask when they hear that we've done a two kilometer slack line, they say, how the hell do you even rig something like that? And it's funny because the three questions we get as highliners are, how do you get the line across? Are you wearing a tether? And have you seen man on wire? And so I'll tell you about the rigging. Yes, we wear a tether. And of course we've all seen man on wire, just the short rapid fire but to get the line across on something like this is a huge huge effort right so imagine you have this huge mine but the walls are not perfectly sheer you know like it's not a sheer walled mine it's like there's steps in it and at the bottom of the mine you have this lake that's 850 meters across so from one side basically we take all this rope and we throw the ropes down and we connect them together so that we have from one anchor down to the water, we have all this rope, static rope. 
And then in the water, we basically tie the webbing to the rope and we use a boat and we drive the boat across the lake and every 50 meters, we tie empty gallon jugs to the line so that as the line sits there on the water, it floats, it doesn't sink to the bottom, right? Then at the other end, we actually lay the webbing out across the rocks very carefully and up to the anchor so that when we eventually make the connection and it's rope to webbing all the way to the anchor, then basically what we do is we pull tension on the webbing so much so that it starts to float off of the ground and it's no longer touching the rocks, right? So you can imagine that the webbing is delicate and lightweight and obviously we're about to put our lives on it. So it's really important that we protect the webbing from abrasion. We don't want it to grind on the rocks or get sliced or cut. That would foil the entire operation. So we've got like 30 people there and basically we all walk down and hold up the webbing off of the rocks by hand until it has enough tension on it that it flies. How we're putting tension on the line is a crazy story in its own. Two of the Montreal slackliners are engineers and fabricators, and so they engineer this thing that we call the slack machine. And it's basically this like $2,000 electric motor that is really super strong, and it turns these two barrels that are like 12 inches in diameter, and it basically is designed to pull in on the webbing, right? And keep it flat and not abrade it. But it goes slow, right? So it takes forever. So imagine, on one side we have, from the near side down to the water is about 800 meters, and then it's 800 meters across the water, so then we have about 400 meters of rope in the system. So we have to get this 400 meters of rope out of the system, so Basically, the slack machine pulls in on the webbing until the webbing is flying, and then it has to let out on the webbing 400 meters as the other side pulls in on 400 meters worth of webbing, or uh, of, of rope. And how they pull in on the rope is a thing called a capstan. It's basically a four-stroke lawnmower engine that is connected to another barrel that you wrap the rope around the barrel four or five times and it creates enough friction that now the four-stroke motor is pulling in on the rope. Which, it doesn't pull fast and the slack machine doesn't pull fast. So basically, it takes the better part of the afternoon, call it five hours or so, of just letting the slack machine run out and letting the capstan run in while putting out the fires that arise when the webbing is twisted or it needs taped again or myriad problems that arise, including sometimes the slack machine will let out too much webbing and the capstan can't pull it in quick enough so it'll want to touch the rock. So we have to, everyone is like on super lookout for it to touch the rocks and we're using radios and you know, we're two kilometers from the other side, so there's obviously you can't even see the other team. So it's like this, this distant cooperation. It's very, <clears throat> very interesting. So finally we get the webbing connected to the far side. So now we have webbing to webbing on both anchors. The rope is out of the system. And then basically what we did was we use a huge pulley system. 
it's like basically a 12 to 1 pulley system <clears throat> and we have these devices called line grips that grip onto the webbing so we can pull in on it and we actually have to use two of those in like a kind of redundant pair and we pull on the pulley system by hand actually there's like six or seven of us on the ground and we pull on it by hand but there's so much multiplication in the in the pulley system that it's not even that hard to pull on right so now we've got the line tight it's ready to walk we've got a bunch of leash rings on it the, the tethers that we use to provide our safety are these steel rings that both the main line and the backup are going through so as you walk it just follows you along and that basically happens after dinner so it was call it two full days of rigging and I was there for the second day, which was like the laying the webbing out and pulling the webbing across the lake and the tensioning, yada, yada, right? So we got it rigged a couple days before the event so that we could actually have time for people to walk across it because there was a lot of us who wanted to walk across it, right? Everyone volunteered their time and efforts basically in trade so they could get a chance to walk on what was the the world's longest high line. And I'll stop right there as a side note and say this was not the world's longest slack line ever rigged, actually. Um, this was two kilometers and ends up being the world record high line because people successfully walked across it without falling down. But about a year prior, there was a team of slackliners who rigged a 2.8 kilometer long slackline in Norway, but the wind and the conditions basically prohibited them from walking across it successfully, even though one guy walked 2.6 kilometers without falling. His name is Kruren. He's from Germany, he's a friend of mine. And another guy walked 2.2 kilometers without falling down, also from Germany. His name's Friedi, longtime friend of mine. And those guys are just incredible. That happened uh, in Norway, and eventually the wind and weather came in so much that it actually destroyed the high line, and they had to take it down and replace all the parts and blah, blah, blah. All right? So... Our line is the world record high line, but it's actually not the longest slack line ever rigged. In Norway, there was a lot more water, so the rigging was a little bit more straightforward, but kind of a similar thing. A big, you know, you need 30 people, you need $12,000 worth of webbing, you need three days. It's just like, it's a big, these kind of things are just massive operations, right? So, basically, after we've got the line rigged, then as a team, we basically have to fight over the walking list of who gets to walk first and in what order and yada, yada, yada. And I'll basically skip that part. But finally, it becomes my turn, right? I'm going to get my first turn on the high line. And I'm feeling a little bit better at this point. And my session ends up being like late in the evening. So I'm like gonna get a sunset session, which is pretty awesome. I love the soft light and it's not too hot. Most people who are walking this line are taking a camelback so that they can have water, right? Some people are estimating that it's gonna take them more than three hours to cross this. One girl who goes the day that I walked 
she was kind of stubborn and we didn't all think that she should go out there because obviously it's a very dangerous place to be. You have to be very self-reliant. It's extremely difficult to rescue people off of such a line. You're totally marooned out there. And she went out and walked and walked and fell and fell and fell and fell and, fell and keep, kept walking and kept walking and kept falling and kept getting up until she just completely exhausted herself and she was on the line for about four hours before I told the safety guy I said hey she needs a rescue and she needs it right now and they went out there and rescued her luckily she was about 300 or 200 meters from the edge and the rescue basically looks like these guys have like this little kind of carriage that has big wheels that roll on the slack line and so one guy connects himself to the carriage and then we connect him to a rope and we basically let him down slowly because obviously the line has a lot of sag in it so it's very downhill so we let him out slowly until he gets to the victim he then uses a small pulley system to pull the victim up off of the leash and onto the carriage that he's on and then we pull the carriage back in using a capstan that two that four stroke little lawnmower thing that pulls in on the rope that itself took about an hour and 15 minutes so she was on the line for over five hours which was just a little bit ridiculous that's a little bit too much it's unsafe i don't really think you know and it, it's hard because honestly if it were my project i would tell people look if you haven't successfully walked across a 500 meter long slack line without falling down there's no way you can get out there like it's just unsafe stay stay here that's pretty much like I would kind of draw a hard line, like really long high line experience is required. Like if you're not a successful and like established long high liner, then you shouldn't go out there. But at the same time, my friend Camille, who maybe has a hundred meter high line record, she walked across the thing in three and a half hours and got off the other side, just beaming and so happy and so joyous and she had had this incredible life experience that she was so grateful for, you know? Like, and my rules would have prohibited her from going out there. My other friend, Ludovic, who had a 80-meter PR, he went out there and crossed the damn thing in two hours. Just crushed it. So it's like, you know, it's a really tough thing. Like, who do you let go out there? We appreciate everyone's help for rigging, but, like, who do you let go out there? And basically, we just... At the end of the day, we left it up to the individual and we tried to stress the importance of like how much of an ordeal the rescue was and how like you can't really look at the line and really understand the length. It's like kind of this like thing that it's like a journey, right? So, but at the end of the day, finally, it's my turn. So I get out there. I don't, I decide not to take any water because basically because I am confident that I'm self-reliant and I can be out there for a number of hours without water and just keep walking and walking and walking and I had never walked with a camelback so I didn't really want to change up my system yada yada right so I get out there I stand up I start taking steps and for about the first thousand feet I just tell myself to warm up to get in tune with the line to not rush and don't fall down right and so I walk the first thousand feet and I start getting warmed up and I start walking faster and I'm start feeling in tune and I'm really loving it the slack line is really easy to walk on basically when you get lines this long 
you have this strange effect that basically if you're on a hundred foot long slack line and you make a wobble with your foot, the energy travels through the line, bounces off the anchor and comes right back to your foot and tries to shake the line out from under your foot. But on a line that's this long, you shake your foot and the energy is not powerful enough to move the line for as long as the line is, right? So the energy just dissipates into the webbing and it never comes back to you. Not never, but like like when you're 300 meters from the end, you can start to feel it. And, and closer, like when you're 100 meters from the end, you can feel it. But like when you get 500 meters out, there's nothing coming back to you, right? The line is rigged at about 6 kilonewtons. It's about 1,500 pounds of standing tension. And it has about 450 feet of sag in it. So you imagine it's like at one end, you stand up and you walk 450 feet down. And then to finish, you have to walk 450 feet up, right? So it's got a bunch of sag in it. So I walk the first thousand feet. I'm walking faster. I'm feeling good. I'm just like, I kind of count my breath. That's kind of what I'm focusing on. I'm just like focusing on my breath because realistically the part of me that can balance and the part of me that can talk are two different parts. Like the monkey mind and like my body's balance is not something that I consciously control. I don't say left foot here, right knee down, left shoulder up, right hand down, you know, like I don't like balance just is an, in an innate response. Like it does it. And I've consciously put myself on enough slack lines that my body has become this thing that when I walk on a slack line like this, I am, I get to a point where I'm basically just the observer and I'm just watching my body balance. And I'm trying to be aware of my fatigue and my pace and my breath and like, all of the, like, I'm almost like a supervisor. I'm almost like a supervisor. I'm like, hey, buddy, you've been working too long. You need to slow it down, take a rest, okay? Or you're kind of breathing heavy. Why don't you take a big, deep, releasing sigh? I like these kind of things, you know? I also pay attention to my posture um, and try to keep a little bit of my balancing posture in my awareness so that I can supervise that, right? But for the most part, my body does the balancing. My feet have just taken so many steps on a slack line that I don't have to look down at where I'm putting my foot. My foot just hits the line and my next foot hits the line. It just like, it just happens, right? It's such a beautiful thing to witness. So when you start walking, you're like walking over the mine over the the rocky part of the mine right and there's like a there's like a a weird confidence and a security in that because like you're around rocks and you're around you're like you're not that far out yet but soon enough i get out over the water and it's just like the real like scope and scale of this line kind of hits me and I'm just like in the middle of nowhere, right? There's nothing around me. Like the the water is 500 feet below me and each end is just what seems like light years away, right? So as I get out over the water and I start getting closer to the middle of the line, there's a strange effect that starts happening in the webbing. So you can imagine that this webbing is 
purpose built. It is designed specifically for really long lines like this, and it's very low stretch. It's made out of Dyneema and polyester, very strong materials that are woven in such a way that it minimizes the amount of stretch that the webbing has. But still, you can imagine that as you push off your back foot to make a forward movement, you're putting a horizontal energy into the line, and basically your energy that you put into the line horizontally, it makes one side stretch and it slacks the other side, even very, very slightly. But then that kind of, that energy travels through the line and it kind of rebounds. And so then it pulls forward. And so you get this rhythm going that basically we call it humping. And the line is stretching and pushing and pulling your feet forward and back lengthwise. So much so that it literally makes your hips go forward and back like you're thrusting, right? That's why we call it humping. And it's a really strange effect and it's hard to control. And basically all you can do is keep walking. If you try to stop the humping from happening, basically what you do is you slam on the brakes and slamming on the brakes puts more of a horizontal energy into the line. So you slam on the brakes, the humping gets twice as bad. You then have to fight and fight and fight to control it and to keep your balance through it as you try to control it. And then basically you end up stopped. You're still balanced, but you're stopped and you've just fought. Like you've just expended a bunch of energy, right? So it's inefficient. Like you don't want to do it. So basically all you do through the humping is you keep walking. And I've experienced humping before on shorter lines um, with stretchier webbing and the stretchier webbing, it basically makes a little bit slower of a hump and it will make a longer hump. But on this line, it was like shorter and faster. And what it was doing was it was mandating that I kept walking at a speed that became very uncomfortable for me. Like I was literally walking faster in the middle of this line than I'd ever walked before. I'd never walked this fast. And I got nervous about walking this fast, I was afraid that my foot would eventually miss and I would fall down and blow my chances of having the world record. And so twice I slammed on the brakes and expended the huge amount of effort to fight it and to get control of it again. And then took a big breath and said, okay, start again. And then, you know, you take 50 steps, take a hundred more steps. And now the line is humping again and you keep walking, you keep walking. It makes you walk faster and faster and faster. And now I'm walking faster than I ever have. And now I'm scared and now I'm scared. I'm like, oh, I'm kind of getting tired and I slam on the brakes. And I fight it and fight it and fight it. And I get control again. And then I just tell myself, you know, just, just stop slamming on the brakes and just, just keep walking, man. Just keep walking. And so that's what I do. I just keep walking and keep walking and keep walking. And I'm just crushing at this point. I've never walked so fast on a high line. I passed the middle, so now I've walked further than I've ever walked on a slack line. I get to the far edge of the lake. It's sunset light. Oh, and yeah, one thing I forgot to tell you is that... So the sun is basically setting behind me on my back. And in front of me, the line is just stretching out all that length. And the sun is hitting the far wall of the mine. So the far side of the mine is really, really bright. And that means that I cannot see the line at all. I can't see the slack line. I can see it for about 300 feet in front of me, but more than that, I cannot see it, which is a really strange feeling. It's a strange phenomenon because it's like almost like this like act of faith because you're 
body, like your eyes kind of have a response to it. They're like, I can't see it. Obviously it's there because it's still holding you up, but it's like, it's this weird act of faith every step that you're like, it's there, keep going. It's there, keep going. And the only thing you can do is keep walking. You know, there's no way to like just hop off the line in the middle of it. Right. So you just keep walking. So at this point now I'm to the far side of the lake. I've been walking for an hour, no falls. And now I start walking uphill. Like I said, there's 450 feet of sag in the slack line. I've walked down into the middle. Now I'm walking uphill. But the thing is, it's like, it's not perfectly graded. It's not like a perfect grade from the start to the middle. It doesn't go down 450 feet. It basically goes down the 450 feet in the first like third of the line, right? It's like steep and then it's almost flat for a long ways. And then when you get close to the anchor, then you walk really steep again for a short period of time. And so at this point, I've maybe like 500 meters from the end or 600 meters from the end. And I'm really tired and I'm kind of starting to rush and I start to see the end of the line. I'm like, oh my God, I'm almost there. I can be the world record holder. Come on, here we go. Knock it out. And soon enough, I kind of start fighting and now I can kind of feel the energy coming back through the line to me. And eventually I fall. And I was pretty bummed. I was pretty bummed. But I wasn't that bummed. I wasn't even that surprised. I was like, I was actually impressed that I had walked as far as I did. And I basically sat on the line. And I looked back at what I had just walked across, which just blew my mind. And I looked at the birds on the lake and the beautiful sunset light. And I was very just in that moment, I was just honored to be a part of it. And and wow, right? Well, I stand back up, I finish walking the high line, and the end of the high line is rigged to the top of this big, huge telephone pole that is over the, the Slackline Festival event site, right? So the last 150 feet of the Slackline are literally over where the crowd will be. The first time I walked the slack line, there was no crowd. It was only like 12 of my friends because the festival wasn't happening yet. And so there are my friends. They're cheering me on. I get a walk over their heads. It was super, super cool experience. I got off the slack line. It was just mind boggling how long it was. I just, you know, it's hard to understand how long it is when you actually like rig it and walking it helps you understand. But I still like, I felt like I had meditated and had like gone into such a, almost like a trance that when I got off the line, I was like, what, what did I just do? It was, it was epic. So I sleep well that night, obviously. And then the next day I have a rest day. That was Friday. Saturday, the big day of the event, it ends up that I get a similar time slot on the line and I'm going to walk across the line again at sunset. Oh my God. Right. And I'm like, at this point, I'm like, okay, you can't screw this up. This is your, definitely your last chance. So two days later, I get back on the line and I stand up and I kind of know I'm feeling even better now. I'm a little bit more recovered in my health. So I stand up, I start walking and now I kind of know the rhythm. Okay. First thousand feet, you're just warming up. Don't screw it up. Once you once you get onto flat, then you can really start picking up the pace. Don't slam on the brakes when it humps. 
It's okay to be totally scared that you're just in the middle of nowhere. It's lonely out here. Yes, it's lonely, but keep walking. You can do it. You can't see the line. Yeah, this is normal now, right? Count your breath. The second time I walked across it, I focused on nostril breathing only. This uh, guy, Lucas Ermler, who walked across the line without falling on his first try, he had told me that he only does nostril breathing and he tries to do belly breaths, which basically relax your body. And he also tries to keep a slight smile on his face, which is another trick to try to convince your body that everything's fine. And so I basically focused on that. Nostril breathing, counting my breaths, and keeping a slight smile on my face, which worked so well. I actually found myself, when I would force a slight smile onto my face, I would instantly just be filled with gratitude and be amazed that here I was walking on the world record high line and I had this opportunity and I was with my friends and everyone's cheering me on and they all, like I had this feeling that all my friends from all over the world, they wanted it for me. They thought that I deserved it and I could do it. And, and yeah, it was just like the gratitude that I had on my second walk was just like empowering. It was amazing. And I also had some perspective and I had already, you know, I'd already screwed it up once. And so I really wanted it, but I had already like faced a little bit of disappointment. So I was already like kind of surrendering the idea that if I fell again and not be the world record holder, that that was okay, right? So on this one, I took my time a little bit more. I didn't walk quite as fast. And I got to the other side of the lake and I kept walking up the steep hill. And now I, I passed the point where I'd walked more than a mile on the slack line, right? Without falling down, which was amazing. A mile long slack line, right? And so now I'm walking up the hill and I'm actually feeling pretty good. And I almost fall down once because the energy comes back to me. And I almost fall down once, which was like the warning of the line saying, hey, like this is becoming a real slack line again. Like you got to be careful here. But unfortunately, I didn't quite recognize the warning as I should have. I was tired at this point. Obviously, I'd been on the line for more than an hour and a half already. And... After I had like fought to save myself from falling off the line, I got myself back into a nice rhythm of walking and I was walking up the hill and somehow my mind drifted. I can't even remember what it was. It was some arbitrary thought that my mind drifted to and soon enough I found myself, my vision was like of the line upside down. My feet are turned sideways on the line. My head is... I'm totally bent over at the waist and my head is nearly below my feet and I'm fighting so hard and I just thought to myself, no, 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 don't fall down, don't fall down. And eventually, bang, I fall down. I whipped and basically I screamed fuck as loud as I could. And then I looked around and saw more sunset beauty and I said out loud, well, it wasn't meant to be. And I stood back up on the line and I started walking the crowd had obviously seen me fall. They'd been watching me because now it's Saturday. So it's the day of the big event. There's live music playing. There's an announcer. There's like 5,000 people there. So they, I fall and they all scream like, Woo, come on, you can do it. And honestly, like 
most spectators, they don't like, they don't recognize that to succeed, we're trying to walk across without falling down. They just think that walking across the damn thing is just the most amazing thing they could ever imagine, right? So they cheer when I fall. And so I stand back up and I start walking and I keep walking, keep walking, keep walking. And now remember the line is on this big telephone pole. And so the line goes right over the heads of all of the crowd, right? And at some point, since I'm walking on such a steep piece of webbing now, at some point I basically become face to face with the crowd, right? I'm in deep in Quebec and they all speak French. Very few of them actually speak English. So as I'm standing there right in front of the whole crowd, they're all looking at me. And I say, bonsoir, good evening, good evening. And everyone just erupts into cheering, right? And I keep walking, I walk over their heads, and right when I get to the end of the slack line, instead of sitting down, I just turn around and I stand sideways on the slack line and I look down at the whole crowd and they're looking at me and I'm looking at them and finally I just give up and I just dive off the high line backwards into my leash, which puts me on this huge pendulum swing. It was super cool. And then I climb back up my leash onto the line and I sit there on the line and I wave at the crowd and I thank them for cheering me on and then I get off of the line onto a boom lift because we were using a boom lift to get on and off the slack line. And when I get off the slack line, I again wave and thank the crowd and they cheer me on. And and then I got off the slack line um, feeling really grateful. Honestly, I was disappointed that I wasn't the world record holder. And I can't say that as I walked it, it didn't go through my mind. Will I be the world record holder? What does that mean? How will my life change? Can I do it? There was like a mix of pride and there was a mix of curiosity. And there was like, it's like, imagine like something where you have to focus so hard for two hours or more to, to walk across it. And it's like, it's just such an, it's like a physical journey. It's like, an emotional journey and it's really like a journey into your own mind because you end up seeing all these thoughts that pop into your mind and you end up seeing how your body responds and how it gets tired and when it's feeling really good and you start feeling your brain and how it's you know your thoughts are affected by your fatigue and your pride and all these things right it's just this crazy crazy journey and so as I got off there was a film crew there and they, the, the interviewer, she asked me, what do you think about when you're on the line? And I made this cheeky little, uh, like gesture where I just, like I was staring at my feet and I just made one step, one step, one step. And she says, one step at a time, huh? I said, yeah. I said, if you're worried about or thinking about or concentrating on where you will be in the future, then you'll fall down. You have to be right where you are to balance. You have to be present right here at this step, at this moment. And if you lose your presence, you'll certainly fall down. And that is so true in life. If you hope and wish that you're somewhere that you're not, whether that's physically or as far as what you're doing in your career or your activity or your relationship, then you just blow it. 
The only way to actually respond to the things that you're dealing with is to be right where you are. She loved that. And I think that, you know, the next interviewer I told, it's not, you know, it's, it's totally fine with me to have huge goals and huge dreams and to work really hard to get them and to, to realize that even though you didn't get them, that you've come so far and that there is still yet more to learn. Beautiful thing, right? Beautiful thing. So that's pretty much my story of the world record high line. It was an amazing opportunity. And so I'm super grateful to Danny and to Julian and to all the Slackline Montreal and Slackline Quebec people who made the event happen. And to my sponsor, Keen, who paid for my flights there and back. And um, yeah, what an amazing opportunity. And thank you for listening. Please subscribe to my whatevers, my YouTube, my Instagram. I don't know if you want more stories. I'm starting to, I'm swallowing my own pill every day, trying to tell more stories. So if you want to come along, cheer me on. It helps. (laughs) It helps. So thanks again for listening. We'll see you on the next episode, y'all. Peace.